basically the same thing Wendy said a second ago, which is you notice that Adams talks about invitations. And he talks about, I've forgotten exactly how he says it. What page is that on? Um, some preachers conclude weekly with a um, verse of poetry or a line or two from a hymn. Rarely is this effective. So, okay, is that what you're talking about? Okay, that's actually not talking about an invitational hymn. What this is talking about is um, there is a, here it is, here's the part here. And while we're at it, let me condemn outright the singing of a hymn following the sermon. Okay, so that's the part. That's what we're talking about. If the conclusion has been well thought out and has been effectively delivered, then the congregation should be left with that to think about. It is unwise to risk doing anything that might mar or dissipate the effect of the conclusion. Probably as much harm has been done to a good sermon through the delusory words of ill-suited music of a concluding hymn as by any other single factor. That's okay. It is weak preachers whose sermons do not have powerful conclusions who do sometimes else try to redeem the morning of eating effort to whom these final hymns belong. Okay, so you have to understand something about Adams. Number one, he's writing in a context. Okay, when was this book written? If you look in the front cover, it should say probably 19, what, 70, 60, 70, 80, 82, okay? So, and you can kind of get glimpses throughout his, his stuff about the kind of culture that he's addressing, this purposeless, aimless preaching. Also, secondly, Adams is extremely opinionated about everything. He was forged... And he came to prominence as a writer because of his work with um, counseling. So he realized that psychology, biblical counseling, was completely toothless. It had no biblical counseling. When he came on the scene, was a mixture of psychology and Bible verses. It was really had nothing to do with actually calling people to repentance. It was very mushy. And it prioritized psychological babble over biblical truth. So they're teaching some things that were unbiblical, but dressing it up in biblical truth. And so he writes this book called Competent to Counsel, which is an amazing book, which I highly recommend. And he takes these people head on. It takes a certain kind of person to deal with a whole culture. Like, can you imagine approaching an entire culture of church? Like seeing something that everybody does, the entire world does, and saying, you know what? That's not biblical. It's kind of like a Martin Luther kind of a mindset where you really look at the world and you're like, here I stand. I can do, you know, I can say no other, you know, here I am. This is the truth. So he's a very kind of a boom in your face, opinionated kind of person. And he's, he's got that background, but he's also reformed, reformed Presbyterian, meaning that he believes very strongly in the reformed tradition of like, um, the Calvinist model of salvation, which is focuses mostly on the sovereignty of God to the detriment of the free will of man. Okay. Not to get into too many details. So when he goes down this rat tra- goes down this path, what tends to happen is that they tend to not call people at the end of a service for, for dealing with their, their, their uh, sin or not having an invitational hymn. Now, how, why does Harvest do it the way we've done it? Well, we've done it, we kind of evolved over the years. I use that word intentionally because we've done all kinds of things. When we were very small, sometimes people would come down front and pray at the end of a service. As the church got larger, um, fewer and fewer people wanted to get out of their seat and come down front 
to pray. I think some of that is just people are afraid of being seen. And so years ago, uh, my dad, when he was pre- pastor, I mean, it's probably 20 years ago, we started doing blue cards as a way of getting people to respond to a message. And that really worked. People will respond in their seats even. They don't have to come forward. There's nothing magic about coming forward to the front of the, serve, to the, front of the church to, to kneel and pray. But there is an important time to call people to action. I do think music is powerful, but I think that also he's, he's reacting to something here, which is poorly done music. So the, there, there was a tendency, a temptation among a lot of people in this time. What they would do is, is they would have a sermon, then they would close the really sentimental song, and they would just keep singing and singing and singing and singing like, stanza after stanza there's a joke like out now on this 49th stanza of just as i am you know that is really what people did right well no that the 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 joke that i'm thinking of is not people are actually down front it's that you're 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 you think if you just keep singing long enough somebody's going to come i know you're out there i know you're out there god's told me there are people here and wait a second there's, that's, a, that's a very uh, problematic, to use a problematic phrase. That's a, that's a very complicated thing. Like if you're saying that God is speaking in your mind, telling you there are people there. I mean, maybe the Spirit is working and maybe you believe there are people there. But, um, but you know, th- then what happens is somebody's like, well, I don't, maybe if I've heard people say, well, if I go down and pray, then he'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> and they do. I've heard. Yeah, right. Okay, so I'm not to be cynical, but. So at our church, what we've kind of evolved to do what we find works effectively among our people is that people do make decisions in their chairs. People do mark on a blue card. You know, I've been working. The Lord has convicted me of this. And and they that's their way of, of kind of sealing that decision. And I think that is important. But I, I don't I think he overstates his case here. I think he's responding to the time he lives. Everybody responds to the time they're in in some way. They're reacting to bad things that are done around them. And so there are reactions that people have. There was this huge reaction. Just I, I, I'm not going to take any more time with that, if that's okay. Uh, because I could keep going and going, and then we'll never get to our quiz, which is what you guys want, right? He almost got out of the quiz. But you notice here, there's two aspects to this. This first thing he says here, right here, that I highlighted, can you see that? This is true. That generally speaking, I don't like concluding. There, there was a trend years ago where at the end of your message, you would quote some poetry to kind of sum up your poem. That was how you concluded your message. Like this called three points in a poem. Like that's what people called it. Three points in a poem. And again, that's what he's talking about here is that that's a lazy if that's your solution, if that's your conclusion. Because it doesn't mean that you've actually concluded anything just by saying it in poem, in poem form. Does that make sense? Like if you finish your sermon and then you say, and you go into a poem, I know, I knew a pastor who did this all the time and he usually wrote his own poems, which is actually a little bit better. But if you're just quoting somebody else, it doesn't really usually capture all that you're trying to say. It's almost like a formula, a devotional. Yeah. It's like reading daily bread, which I have a copy of here somewhere on the table. It's on the table. You want me to get oh, it? I know. I threw it over there. No, it's fine. Yes, ma'am. Did, oh, I thought you raised your hand. Anything else? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this time we have together this morning. I pray you'd help everyone to do really well in the quiz and that you would give us a a blessed uh, class period together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.
Question number one. What is the purpose of a sermon's or the sermon's introduction? Is it A, to fully develop the idea of the matter to be discussed? B, to lead the congregation into the matter to be discussed? C, to confuse the congregation about the matter? Or D, to broaden the topic? So, you know, obviously not D. <laughs> Answer is B, to lead, lead the congregation. Your idea is to introduce the idea of the sermon, to lead them into the world of your text. Some I, I try to communicate, but when you're preaching a, a, a passage, you've got to remember, you've been studying this passage for a very long time now. You've been thinking about it. You've been meditating on it. God's been challenging you. you you've maybe even repented because of what you've been working on. And then all of a sudden, you're introducing this passage to people who have not thought about this passage in a very long time. They have not considered this passage. It hasn't even just, I mean, some of them have never, never read it before. So you have to remember who, what you're doing when you present. You are, have to introduce them to this world of uh, this, this text. Not just, you're not going to tell them everything. You're just going to kind of get them into the idea. I think Adams does a good job there. Uh, true or false? Arresting or getting the attention is one of the important aspects of a good introduction. True. true. Three, you must be careful not to use the same kind of introduction every time or every week so as not to become too predictable. True. True, yeah. Um, like if you use the same illustration or the same opening every single week, there's a murderer in this church, you know. <laughs> there's a thief in this church. Okay, we get it, you know. Uh, it was funny the first time. You, you had to be careful um, not to just do the same thing over and over again. Uh, true or false? False. You should consider introducing a new idea in your conclusion. False. This happens way more than you think it does. And I guarantee you, I won't guarantee you, I expect that one of you is going to do this when you preach or teach your first message. You'll get to the end of your message and you remember something. You're like, oh, I kind of forgot to say this. And so you're like, I'll just add it here in the conclusion. If you haven't said it by the conclusion, don't say it. Because your, your point of your conclusion is to like wrap it up and to remind people of where you've been. Yes, ma'am. Is it then appropriate if you come up with a new idea to put it back in your sermon or no, because that would destroy your flow? It's very rarely a good idea to include an idea that you have while you're speaking in your message. So if I'm in the... But if you, while you're writing your conclusion... Oh, like yeah. Thing, then you can put it back in yes, yes. So if you if you're at the end of your message and you're like, oh, I got something. There, there's an idea here that I just now saw. You then go back into your message part and you 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 can put it in there appropriately where it belongs. So when you come to your conclusion, it isn't sound. It's not just tacked on. So yeah. So here's how I write my messages. Okay, I begin with my outline structure. I, well, I write it kind of like I give you guys, but how it looks, if you were to like watch a speed, like watch a uh, sped up version of my, of my Word document as it becomes a message, is that it starts with just my main outline points and then my sub outline sub points, and then it develops out like this. So, and then finally I add the conclusion and the introduction at the very last point. I, I, I don't like write from the beginning to end. I kind of write like this because <clears throat> I don't, I don't know how, what I'm going to say. I don't know how I'm going to introduce the text, you know, when I start. So when you write the body first, it helps you with the conclusion and the introduction. Yeah. You feed off of the body for both. The yeah. Beginning. You don't know, you don't want to introduce. So a common mistake is you get this idea in your head of how you want to introduce your message. 
and you fit your text to what you're going to introduce. It's backwards. You want to decide what the passage is saying, what, what it means, and what it means to me. And then you say, okay, then what's the problem being addressed? What's the theme? What's the solution to that problem? How can I introduce that problem? And what's a arresting way, a captivating way, maybe a story, maybe a statistic, maybe uh, something that kind of gently introduces the idea or whatever. You don't want to start with your idea of how you want to introduce first. It's just, it's backwards, yeah. That's why some of your introductions are like, so yesterday Dottie did this. Literally, <laughs> I have, I mean, I, I'm not ashamed to tell you. I have gone, I'm praying during the song service sometimes about exactly how to introduce a message. I don't like going that far. But when you preach, when you, well, when you preach every week, it's not like you have, I mean, you, you, there's a lot, there's a lot of work. And so you're like, you're like, sometimes it's <laughs> just last week. I'm like working, I'm like preaching my message. I look down and there's like an incomplete sentence in my notes. It's like, and that's why nothing. <laughs> and I'm like, I really should have finished that idea before I got to this part in my message. But, um, so is there half, they're not half baked, like mentally, like, like conceptually, but sometimes the exact way I'm going to say something is not, is not ironed out until I preach it, you know, but, but what I'm saying is like introduction wise, it's the very last thing. Like sometimes I come in here early on Sunday morning and normally I'm all done. Normally I'm, my sermon's done by Friday. Normally everything's done. And I just kind of tidy some stuff up on Saturday. But, but sometimes there have been days where I am struggling. I just don't know how in the world I'm going to introduce this idea. I, I, I'm, just, I'm just dry. And so I'll go take a walk or I'll go play with my kids or I'll do something completely. I always get away. And then I'll be like, Lord, you just got to help me out here. And then um, I'll go to bed Saturday night being like, well, I'll figure it out in the morning. And then... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just the introduction. Now, I would never do that with an actual message, like with a whole message. But like for just an introduction or something, you know, by that point, it's like, well, you know what the passage is saying. I hope you talk to some good people Yeah, okay, get, a good, get a good story, yeah. Um, Have you ever been up there and just said, um, I got nothing for the introduction. Let's just go straight to the message. Well, not quite. The closest of that, the closest of that was when uh, we did our Through the Bible series. And I told Drew and Randy, I said, you know what I'm going to do for the last Through the Bible message is I'm going to preach through the entire Bible in one message. And they're like, okay. I said, yeah, I'm going to just like start a Genesis and hit as many highlights as possible. And I started working on that message. My average notes, so like an average service sermon is about eight to 10 pages of notes. I had like 20 pages of notes. And, um, and so I, it was, took me about 50 minutes of just like breakneck speed. And Drew made the comment the next day. He's like, yeah, he says, I was like, like sitting down, getting loosened up. I thought you were going to tell a story. And it was like, boom. <laughs> I, just like, I just like started on Genesis and was like, you know, in the beginning, God. And just, you know, boom. You know, didn't, didn't, didn't say any introduction or anything, just kind of launched into it. So that was, I normally don't, I normally try to have an introduction because introductions are important. People need a little bit of time to figure out what kind of message this is. Is this one of those messages that's supposed to be uplifting? Is it, is it going to be confrontational? Is it going to be one that's more like in the mind or is it one that's more in the heart? Like people need, and all of your introduction kind of sets the stage for that and helps people understand, helps people really be receptive to the message. You're just kind of, it's like you're watering the ground so that the seed can, can go. okay, that's all you're doing. You're not, you're not manipulating anything. You're just kind of 
loosening up the, the soil a little bit, okay? Um, number five, because true sermons always call for change, often decision-making takes place when sermons are being preached, most frequently during the conclusion. True. True, yeah, true. Which of the following does Adams not recommend doing as you conclude your sermon or lesson? What we just talked about. Yeah, I know. I I leaned into it. I I tell you, I'm just giving out points here. I'm giving them out. I hope you got D. D is the answer. Recite or read some poetry. Okay, so it's out of 20. So five questions, four points apiece. And uh, any questions about the... Take that out six. That's 24. Yeah. Go for 24. Yeah, get an additional four points for the bonus. So, okay. um, Yeah, the did you read is just kind of a help for me to know if I'm assigning enough, too much, whatever. I got some handouts in the back. Make sure you grabbed one. Uh, Handouts, they're going to replace some of the material that you have in your book now um, about interpretation. I didn't get a chance last time when I taught this class. Can I have that, please? To really, um, oh, I should have waited. Sorry about that. Uh, to really get much into this section, I kind of spent a lot of time in observation and didn't do as much. I want to spend a little bit more time here talking about interpretation. Um, and so I, I reprinted some stuff for you um, and did a little more work, etc. cetera. Um, so it's, it's about on page, um, about on page like 37... 35, 37, 39, something like that. I don't know. Um, is, this, is this in place of or supplement? It will, it will be in place of the page that looks like this. Understand the passage part two. It starts there. And it's going to go all the way to the unrolling the... Um, okay. Unrolling the... Rolling out the application. Okay. So I just, I just printed it, reprinted it, and... Again, I'm sorry about the page numbers being a kind of a mess, but if you really want, I can give you a new copy when everything's all said and done at the end of the class. What's the matter, Christy? So it's replacing page 39. Is it? No, it's replacing like 35. 37, 38, and 39. It's all, it's all out of whack. The page numbers are off because I added stuff. I know, I should have just not, either not numbered the pages or given it to you week by week, but I wanted to give you a whole, a whole notebook at the start. I really thought I wouldn't have to do this. You're right, I was try- yes, I was trying to... Well, how would you do an introduction before the meet, right? No, I- that's right, that's right. Um, so it's replacing 37, Whatever, yeah, whatever understanding the passage part two, what it means. So, this page, it looks like this. It looks like this right now in your notebook. You're just going to take it out. Everything, I mean, it's not much different. It's just a couple extra things added in. There really isn't that much different. It's just a couple extra, like, quotes and things on contextualization, which is application, which is what we're going to talk about. Okay? You know, I really should bring this to the other side. Hang on. Let me swing this around. Or, nah, it'll be all right. Okay, um, oops, what did I just do? I just lost it. Don't do this to me. Come on. 
It's connecting. Okay, so the first the first step of whatever you're preaching or teaching has to be to find out what something says. Okay? And then we are going to work ourselves to what I'm calling the timeless. So there's several different ways of thinking about this. There's the time bound. Okay, so I'm going to start preaching on 1 Peter this week. 1 Peter was written in a specific time to a specific group of people by a specific person. I'm talking about the then lecture. This is the world of lecture. Okay? The timeless is all people, all times. So when we move from this to this, we're trying to understand what's the meaning of the passage. So what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Um, to understand how this works, we do something called contextualization. Okay, it's a fancy word. It just means you understand what the passage means. So I, I got this. I found this is helpful. What is meaning? What, what is a passage? When you say something, what it means, what are you talking about? Okay, well, meaning is that to which the words or grammatical structures of a text disclose about the probable intentions of its author, editor, and the probable understanding of that text by its intended readers. Okay, so there is, there is text. So there's author. Produces a text. Now, what's unique about the biblical author? It's the Holy Spirit. Yes. God. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. And mankind. Together. That's how inspiration is described. Alright? The holy men of God spake as they were carried along by the Spirit. That all Scripture was breathed out by God. So I can say Moses says, and I can say God says. Um, the Bible does it all the time. It says, has not, did not Moses teach you? Okay, man. Has the Lord said? And Moses says, the Lord says. Thus says the Lord. So, we have the author and we have the text, but we also have the reader. The reader is looking at the text as well. Now, where is meaning found? Is meaning found here? Or is meaning found here? And the important thing I'm trying to make sure you understand is the reason we do all this work here. Like, why do we care what it says? Why do we care what the author meant? Why do we care about historical, grammatical, contextual, whatever? We care because we care what the intent was of the text. And what the reader is supposed to discern is what did the author mean of the text? So meaning is included is in the text itself. And it is supplied by the author, and it's perceived by the reader. Am I making sense? Or am I, like, completely... Okay, so there are people who disagree with this. There are people who say it doesn't matter what the author said. The only thing that matters is how you perceive it. Have you ever been in a Bible study where it says, well, what does this mean to you? Let's read a passage and everybody just say what it means to you. Okay, what is that doing? It's saying it does not matter what the author said or meant. It only matters what was said. And how you feel about what was said. It matters not what the author actually said. What his intentions were. Intentions of the author are extremely important. Because without this, where is the limiting, where is the governing governance? Where is the limit? 
hey, what do you want it, what do you want it to say? You can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say. You can twist it. You can be like, well, I like this verse because it means this to me. Okay. We do not do that because that is placing us in the position of authority. Whereas biblically speaking, we are in position of, 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 we are subjecting ourselves. We are submissive to the text. Also, there is something I want to, I don't know if it's in my notes. I don't necessarily think it is, but, um, this is something, have you ever heard of reading in good faith? Okay, what this means is that there is a, whenever you read something, so let's just imagine like you're reading a novel, okay, or you're reading a newspaper article. You're engaging with that author and you're, you are reading in good faith. You're accepting the world that that author has created for you. You're accepting it because that's how you read. It's, a, it's actually kind of like a covenant. That, it's very covenantal in, the, in respect to the way God makes covenant with men. There's this, there's this mutual uh, covenant making. There is this promise that the, the, the author makes with the reader. And the reader is responsible to the author. So I'm not allowed to just twist. Uh, you know, I re- I've, been reading some, uh, I've been reading Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky recently. And I'm not allowed to just twist that and make it whatever I want to make it. I have to actually engage with what he's saying and be like, okay, this is his. It would be wrong for me to twist what he's saying. It's the same with the scripture. Um, so when you read in good faith, you take the author at their word, his word, God's word. You, you don't get cynical. The opposite of this is cynicism um, and what's often called the unreliable narrator. So this is really popular in postmodern literature, unreliable narrator. You can't really trust the narrator. You're a suspect. You read everything they say. You say, what was he really trying to do? Okay. So in general, we take... We take them in good faith. Here's an example. I, uh, in Ruth, in Ruth, what, what, um, it says that Ruth was um, uh, going to glean in the fields. And do you remember the phrase that she happened upon a field owned by Boaz? So what are we to make of that? That she happened upon a field by a man named Boaz. We're not to make of that. I think it is wrong for us. And I've made this mistake too in the past. I think it's wrong for us to say, oh, you see what really happened is that, you know, she knew and she went and she manipulated the situation. The Bible's like, yeah, you know, like she, she kind of happened upon the field, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod. It, there's no indication in the text that, that she happened upon. Now, God intended it to be that way. And the word used there is that God's intending, but it would be wrong for us to say, oh, that's just a way of them kind of covering up for the fact that she really manipulated her way into this. Does that make sense? I, 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 I've heard people make comments like that before and say, oh, you know, Naomi, she kind of... No, we have to read in good faith. The Bible says it, we take it. We understand it. We don't, we don't try to... Even if we're getting cutesy with it, we, we don't do that. We take it very seriously. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's keep talking about meaning. Um, so when we get down to meaning here, we look at meaning, we're asking ourselves, what biblical principles are being taught... What biblical principles are being illustrated, perhaps, if you're dealing with a story? What biblical truth is being taught? Okay. 
Um, so like doctrine about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, about the Holy Spirit, about ourselves, etc. What character trait of God is being highlighted? These are just some basic questions. I mean, there are more, many more. These are just some ideas. Okay. Then you might ask yourself uh, eternal truths uh, about this text. What fault within man is being highlighted here? Okay. If you're t- if, uh, Pat, your, your passage is on um, uh, Ephesians 6. You're talking about the armor of God. What fault of man is being highlighted by this passage, you think? I'm putting you on the spot. We are being attacked by an unseen enemy. And if we're not aware of him, it's easy to fall into his trickery. Okay, so we are easily deceived, and we're defenseless. Okay? We're like, if you think about it, we're, like, don't, we're very vulnerable. We're very soft all over. Like, we're easily hurt, harmed. Uh, we're kind of vulnerable. And so that is being taught. There's a meaning there that we are vulnerable. And just like they were vulnerable then, we are vulnerable now. Okay. So we keep going. What truth uh, for all people, for all ages, for all time is being taught by this passage? That's kind of what I'm getting to is that's the idea. That at the top, you're abstracting out and saying not just in the then and not just now, but like forever. Like for all people, what is the truth being taught? Okay. So when we do this, to, to understand meaning, we have to use some basic what's called hermeneutical principles. Hermeneutics is just the principles of Bible interpretation. Um, they are simply avoid allegory. What is allegory? Pilgrim's progress. Yes. Like this represents this, this represents this. Now Jesus uses allegory sometimes when he teaches, but if it is wrong for us to take stories from the old Testament and allegorize them. Yes, ma'am. Is the only allegories in the Bible when Jesus speaks parables? Uh, no. Um, there are other allegories in Ezekiel and in Isaiah. Um, there are some, not just when Jesus speaks parables, there are, where they're clearly marked, though, they'll be like, the, the king of the trees gathered the trees together and spoke to them. You know, you're like, okay, that, that's not saying there's actually like some king of the trees who actually gathered literal trees together. It's, it's talking about something else. Or the dreams that are interpreted we have, they're, 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 they're not allegorical, really. But the danger, here, here's what happened, is that Christians in the early centuries did not know how to deal with the Old Testament. They didn't understand how to make that, how to deal with that as a, as a Christian. So what they often did was is they, 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 they didn't, and they didn't particularly like the Jews either. So Jewish things were seen as suspect. And so what they often did was is they would reread the Old Testament into like these stories about the church and about Christ and about government and culture, et cetera. So they, 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 they kind of minimized that, and, and that's a shame. So that's where that comes from. You have a lot of allegorical teaching in origin and origin and really since then. Yes, sir. So would you say like today, um, I guess one thing that pops in my head is like David and Goliath. Is, this, is it totally allegorical when people are kind of like, what's the giant in your life and how to like overcome it? Like is that kind of... Okay. Is that kind of going along the lines of the allegory? Or is sort that of. If, that, if you're in the application process mm-hmm. and you're saying just as David had to face down Goliath, we too have to face down. No, that's application. That's applying the principles that are derived from that text. What allegory would be saying is that David represents the church. Goliath represents the world. The five smooth stones represent scripture, witnessing, worship. I mean, they always, it's always like that. I mean, you read it. And, and another kind of allegory that's really become popular is is, is the Christocentric reading of old Testament. Or they'll read something like, um, oh man, I'm trying to think of a good example. They, they're kind of ridiculous. It'll be like, 
Um, I can't. Uh, Jonah, jo- hey Donna, how are you? It'd be like Jonah sat and waited for the destruction of Nineveh, but it never came. Jesus sat on the cross three days for his own destruction, and it came. You know, it's that kind of stuff. Where these parallels that are really kind of stretched, far-fetched. There may be some underlying basic, like, structural truth there. Mm -hmm. But does does that represent that? Probably not, you know. So the general rule of thumb is unless the scripture tells you it's a type or tells you it's an an analogy or an allegory, you don't really want to start doing that. Because as I've said before, then you stop looking at the text and you start looking out the window to write your messages, okay? When you stop looking at the Bible and you start imagining and looking up at the ceiling and start looking out the window and saying, okay, what could this possibly mean? That, that's when you're in trouble. You, 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 you are all about the Bible. We're not about just what can we come up with. Also, a lot of those allegories tend to, to tickle the mind. They don't actually tell you to do anything. They don't actually, they don't actually uh, call you to action. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Oh, that's kind of neat. It really, pl- it really is, um, appeals to people's intellect. It tickles their ears. Okay, so it becomes very popular, but it's, 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 not very help, it's not very helpful. So avoid allegory when you're doing your sermon prep, a sermon illustration. Um, there are absolutely like messianic things. Like, for example, this, Ryan's thing on Genesis 22 has obvious messianic overtones because Jesus, there's so many parallels there that it's going to be very hard for him not to. And I think he should at the very end of his message kind of bring that into the, the, how Christ fulfills that pattern established by Abraham and Isaac. Um, but in general, you want to avoid allegory. So why did the woman at the well leave her pot there? Well, it's symbol. Okay, so there, here's symbol. symbol. Of her old life she left behind. It is, because why did, she come to the, why did she come to the well? To get water. The whole reason she came was to get water, and she leaves her pot at the well, not actually fetching water, and she goes in town to tell people. So that's, that's significant. There's, a, there's an element there that's significant. Why did Rachel sit? Why did Rachel not rise and she sat on the teraphim, the little household idols, and not give them over to her father? I don't know. Do you? I was going to say she didn't want to get caught. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there's, there's no like. You know, she was sitting on them, showing dominance over the old life. And no, it's not consistent with the story. It's just you, you can't you just you have to be careful not to make stuff up is what I'm saying. Certain things are consistent with the story. Certain images and objects are consistent with the story itself and with the message of the story, like the woman at the well leaving the water pot. That is significant because that's that's important. It shows you what she was there for, but not her sitting on the idols. I mean, it doesn't. Anyway, we can get avoid spiritualization is the same kind of idea as allegorization. Uh, spiritualization is just another way of saying you take things that are not meant to be spiritual and you spiritualize them. Uh, uh, walking around the city se- seven times. Why, why did Joshua walk around the city so many times? Because God told him to. God told him to. Yeah, but to, you know we're not going to spiritualize it and say you need to get up and walk around your house seven times, or or you need to uh, pray seven times, or that uh, you know. Uh, there, there's all kinds of examples of that in the scripture because there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive. When the Bible, especially in the Old Testament in, in narratives, describes something happening, does not mean that that's telling us to do it. So Jehu, uh, nobody's preaching on Jehu, which is probably good, but that he's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament because he's just a wild man. Like he, he goes and he just wreaks havoc on the Baal worshippers. He does all this stuff. 
but he's not actually someone we're supposed to like copy. We're not supposed to go and slaughter people like Jehu did. It's describing what he did. And so then you can spiritual, be careful to spiritualize um, their acts here. Okay, anachronisms. What's an anachronisms? What's an anachronism? Fancy word, simple meaning. Means things out of time. Okay, so anachronism means that you're using some, uh, a modern understanding of something in the wrong time. So let's just imagine that you were watching a movie, and it was a movie of the 1940s. Let's say it's World War II, and they're in a bunker, or they're, in a, they're storming the beach of Normandy, and somebody pulls out an iPhone and takes a selfie. Why are you laughing? Because it's out of place. Because the selfie, the iPhone wasn't invented until 2007. You know, but you think about it, that's only 60 years difference between the iPhone and storming the beaches of Normandy, give or take. And so if we import our understandings of things on the Old Testament text, um, or New Testament text even, uh, we, we can be anachronistic. People are doing that today with uh, modern morality. They'll see things in, uh, about homosexuality in the Bible, and they'll be like, oh, that can't be talking about actual like gay people. This is talking about... like." something else, obviously, because we all know, and this is not me talking, we all know that God would never condemn someone for something that they can't help. Okay, You see how anachronisms can seep into the way you read the Bible. Anachronisms in philosophy, etc. So it's important to take, them at, take the Bible at its word, not to uh, put it in an... Again, I, I haven't experienced too much of that with you guys. In the past, so I wouldn't worry about it too much. Allow the text to speak for itself. Okay. So, when determining uh, the, what a passage means, remember the following important guidelines. I, I pulled this from Introduction to Biblical Interpretation. Um, it says uh, an author intends only one meaning for a text. These are guidelines. An author may intend a text to convey multiple meanings or levels of meaning. For instance, a literal and a spiritual level, or, for example, if something has double meaning or is a joke. So sometimes an author will intend there to be multiple meanings. Uh, Though a text may find a wide variety of significances, both in the original context and forever after, we cannot confuse significance with meaning. Unless we can demonstrate the author's intended multiple meanings for a text, we should never assume they did. So, unless another... Oh, we'll keep going there. A later reader could simply invent or read into a biblical text a meaning not intended by the original author. Along with the literal sense intended by the human author, the Holy Spirit may encode a hidden meaning not known or devised at all by the human author. This is actually talked about in the Bible when it said there were things that angels longed to look into. There were that the the the, the, the uh, prophets when they wrote these things they they wondered about what they were writing. They were, even Daniel, he, he expresses some confusion over what he's writing. He's like, I, you know, he's, he's, he's marveling at what he's writing. And, and so the Spirit is telling them things. They're like, I don't completely get it. And the way prophecy works, is anybody doing prophecy? Sort of? No? You're Daniel. It's not prophecy. Just so you know, for future reference, when you're dealing with prophecy, very often, there's something we call telescoping when you do biblical prophecy. Ah, I ran out of room already. Let me try this again. Sorry. Let's do it in smaller form here. Okay. Very often, when a prophet is giving a prophetic word, pretending these are mountains, 
And to him, his perspective, he sees the peaks of these mountains and not the valleys in between. And very often what you find in the biblical prophetic word is that the prophet is speaking about something in the near future, something about the first coming of Jesus, and sometimes even something about the second coming of Jesus, sometimes all within one sentence. And from his perspective, as he sees it written, it appears almost like one event, but it's not. And Jesus even gives us hints of this in Luke 4 when he says, when he's reading the passage of scripture about, uh, about Isaiah, you know, when Isaiah says, you know, um, I've come to release the captives and, and proclaim the acceptable year of our Lord. And then he stops. What's the next phrase in Isaiah? David says, been fulfilled, then he stopped. Yeah, but what, what's the, it, what he's reading from Isaiah. What, do you remember what the next phrase is if he kept reading in Isaiah? It says, and the day of vengeance for our God. When is the day of vengeance coming? Later. Here. This is the, this is the day of liberation. This is the day of vengeance. And, and in Isaiah, they're back to back. And Jesus stops and says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't finish the reading because that's still yet to be fulfilled. So a lot of times Isaiah... Uh, Zechariah, a lot of the minor prophets, they have this kind of thing. So sometimes they, the prophets themselves even, don't completely grasp what the Spirit has taught them or told them to, to write. And so um, uh, we have to realize that. Biblical, but, la- but what happens is later on, a biblical writer will say, this is that which was spoken by the prophet when he said this. And they will interpret, interpret that uh, that way. So, a biblical author may have intended a text to have a single meaning, but later a biblical author may have discovered an additional meaning he saw in the text. So, just some, some basic thoughts. When we talk about contextualization, the process of moving from what it meant to what it means, I found this chart in Osborne. I thought this was helpful. Um, you move from surface meaning, that's what it says, to some deep structural principle. Okay, that's like principles of justice, principles of righteousness, principles of rescue and salvation, and then original backgrounds, situation, the original situation in which it was written. Then we find ourselves a parallel situation to today, general and specific, what it means. I I found that to be somewhat helpful. I actually like my chart a little bit better, which I'll show you in a minute. Let's do practice. All right. Look at this verse here. Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. Some of y'all might remember this from last year. Who wants to read that verse for us? Okay, Derek. When you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. Okay, what do we need to know if we're going to interpret this verse? What is a parapet? A small wall. Okay. A short wall. It's a short wall, like a fence. Uh, and what's the context? Where was this, when was this uh, passage given to us? What part of the Bible? Old Testament, more specifically, the law, Deuteronomy, okay, by Moses to the children of Israel. They are getting ready to become a nation, so they need laws like this, okay? And so what is the what it means part? So there's, there's, three, there's a, three boxes. In the bottom left, you'll see the what it means box. You need to write in a few things there about this is a law for the nation of Israel, um, you know, I can't keep stepping over this thing. Um, you know, your first box here 
you're talking about it's a law, it's about a wall on a roof. Okay, so what are you supposed to do with that? Do you all need to go home in order to be obedient to God, get up on your roof and build yourself a parapet around your roof? Why or why not? You said no. Why would you say not obey God? What do you think? It means clear. It's in black and white. Yeah. Because context, historical context and background, what kind of roofs did they have? Flat. Yeah, they had these houses. They would go up there and hang out on them. And... Yeah, they would have these houses, and they would have a flat roof. And, the, and at the end of the day, they would go up to their roof, and they'd chill because they'd get a wind. Remember, there's lots of houses that are blocking the, the air. And so if you get up a little bit, there's some wind. And they get up there, and they're sitting there talking you know, enjoying the evening. And they realize there's a danger of having a flat roof and people standing on the roof, which is what? People might fall off. Somebody probably did. That's why it's a law. Exactly. So you have this law, and the law is to create a parapet, like a little little guardrail, a little wall in your house, on your roof. What's the purpose of a parapet? We already said it a couple times. To keep people, well, from falling. Accidentally, will it prevent someone from jumping? No. If someone goes up on your roof and they jump off your roof and die, are you responsible for that? No. If someone goes up on your roof, trips, and, well, let's not say trips, kind of muddy the waters. Let's say they're up there and they, it gets dark and they don't see what they're doing and they slip and fall off the roof and there's no parapet, then you could be held accountable. So, the law is telling us that there is a responsibility that we have when. When's the scenario when we are responsible for other people? Are, am I responsible for, for Pat if he goes and falls off his own roof? When am I responsible for Pat? When I'm at your house. Okay, so what, are the, what, are, what kind of things, what kind of meaning are we, are we already pulling from this? You see? I'm responsible for those under my care to protect them from accidental injury. Does that make sense? So if you're at my house... And if I have been doing a project in my house and I leave boards with nails sticking up in them, then that's on me. If you step on that nail, I'm responsible to pay your bill because it was my fault. You should not have to worry about a nail being sticking up out of the floor. You should expect there to be a general sense of, of safety if you're a guest in someone's house. Um, there also, here's, here's, some, here's something, coronavirus, okay? What's the biblical model for, I don't have it, the verse, but... Rack your brain. What's the biblical model for dealing with people who have contagious diseases? Outside the city. Quarantine. Quarantine. Right. Unclean. Unclean. But who do you quarantine? The unclean. The unclean. Do you quarantine the, the people who are healthy? No. You quarantine the sick people. You see how our culture has got it backwards? Biblically speaking, if we were, if we were a, still a country that had biblical like, structures in our mind, it would be obvious to us. Oh, wait a second. You don't quarantine health. You don't tell everybody in the whole county, oh, 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 don't go anywhere. You, know, you can't go anywhere. That, that makes no sense. People have to live their lives. You can't starve people to death. I mean, you can't make, it just won't work. So do you see there are like applications here for the parapet? Now, what kind of applications? So the meaning here, if you had to draw the line up, 
is responsible. I'm just going to put responsible, but you can put something like, I'm responsible for others in my care, you know, to protect them or to keep them from unintentional harm, from accidental injury. You can't protect them from hurting themselves. If someone wants to take my gun and shoot themselves with it, I can't protect, I can't, I can't, you know, if they, they steal my gun and do that, I'm sorry, I can't, I could not have stopped that. But if, if my gun is unlocked and just sitting around and somebody accidentally, some kid gets it and accidentally shoots somebody, then that's on me. Okay, this is, this is all coming from a very simple biblical principle. So how, how would you apply that? What are some, some applications you could say, thus says the Lord? What are some applications that you could draw from this passage that you would say you would be comfortable preaching or teaching? Give me an example. I think last year you talked about like internet safeguards. To yeah, like so. I have a family, and I have now I don't have one in my whole house, but let's say let's say I had a way of like blocking the internet. Or I, I do. Put, I have an internet um, password on my on my on my router, and I have internet filters on every, everything in my house. Why? Because I'm protecting my family. And if you get on the computer of my house, you're going to be protected. I don't want you accidentally harming yourself. Now, if you wanted to get around my filter, you probably could. If you really like had a mind to to like jumping over the fence, you probably could. But that isn't there. It's not there to be designed to be foolproof to keep people who are desiring to harm themselves from harming themselves. Is there to protect people from accidentally hurting themselves. Good. Internet was one I talked about last year. Um, anything else? Any other things you could? I can yeah. A, I can give you a case of a church. Very sad story. They had a bus ministry and uh, didn't inspect the bus. Mm. They should. And the wheel well was rusty, and a child they were transporting actually fell through the wheel well and underneath the wheels of the bus. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, so when you are, so that car, that vehicle, the, the church van is another example. We don't let, we uh, ask people who drive, we keep a record of their license and things, and we tell them you're not allowed to use your, your cell phone when you're driving because you're using the church's vehicle and you're responsible for them. So when you're responsible, when people are, so people get in my car, I can tell them you need to buckle up. My car, my rules. You buckle up. Well, I don't buckle up. Doesn't matter. Buckle up. So on the flip side, then, that if somebody were to get hurt in our care, then we need to make sure that we restore it somehow. That we are, we are responsible for that. You can't say... That we face the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So you see how you're thinking, well, this is just a, a rule about a parapet, a little knee-high wall or whatever, hip, uh, waist-high wall on a, on a roof... In the Middle East, you know, 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, what does that have to do with me? It has a lot to do with us. Lawyers call it due diligence. Yeah. A lot of our modern law comes from biblical principles. And, and, it, and people try to, try to pretend like it doesn't, but it does. So much of our modern law is based on these kinds of things, these kind of case laws from the Scripture. Um, let's keep going. No, I'm not going to keep going. I want to stop there. This is, we're kind of working into the application process, which I'm going to wait on until next week. But I wanted you to kind of get this idea of 
extracting out. Now, one last thing I haven't really, I'm going to start talking about a little bit, but I haven't fully developed it. I won't fully develop it until we get into next time. But um, the, the thing about as you go, you notice here, I have concrete to abstract. Okay, you see that here? This is on uh, that first page which I gave to you. Um, so whatever was communicated to the people in the scriptural times was clear. Our teaching to our people should also be clear. But obviously, it's not exactly the same. My application from this passage in Deuteronomy 22.8 is not, all right, everybody go home and build walls around your house. In fact, in doing that, I would be missing the point. I would not be, it would not be right for me just to say, okay, because, well, I mean, what is your, I mean, I remember I've been to the, uh, the Sheevy's house, they, their roof, you couldn't go up on top of your roof, right, hang out? Unless you wanted to. Unless, it wouldn't be a relaxing place to be. I've been to the Harrisons, can you imagine going to the Harrisons, having a birth, we've been to the birthday parties at their house, having all the kids up on the roof? For a birth, no, you wouldn't even think of doing that, because our, our houses aren't designed that way. So, so the historical context has a lot to say here. So this is simple and, and straightforward and very plain and clear. This is, should be plain and clear and straightforward. But the thing is, how do you get from there to there? You have to go to the abstract. And what I've said here is liability or responsibility is kind of your abstract concept. But the problem with that as a concept is it's abstract. It doesn't, it doesn't have flesh and bones on it. You can't, I just can't say, okay, be, don't be li- or um, take care of people. When they're in your, take care of people. <laughs> okay, well, how do I do that? That could be hospitality. <laughs> yeah, that could be anything. So you have to get back to here. And that's what I'm saying is that you, you have to put flesh and bones on it and say, when, I forgot some of the things we said here, but like protect with the internet thing or protect with the tire, you know, inspect your vehicle, don't, don't put people in bad situation, etc. That has flesh and bones on it. That's straightforward. If, if Moses were in the world today speaking to us, he might say something just like that. It's the same principle, just fleshed out in a different time. Okay? Now, the, the danger is this. Is that the more you get away from, from this to this, like the less this looks like this. So, for example, thou shalt not lie. Like that's almost as easy. It's just... It's pretty straightforward. If you look at the, the law, actually says you should not bear false witness against your neighbor, which is not thou shalt not lie. It's you're not supposed to lie about your neighbor in order to get him in trouble. So we abstract that out, and then we say don't lie. But specifically, don't lie in the court of law. Okay. If you said don't lie in the court of law and don't lie, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, it's basically the same thing. But build a parapet and get your car inspected are not the same thing. Because cars didn't exist. So, so you have to be less dogmatic about the things that are further apart. This is a tricky part of teaching. Is that when you're teaching something that's, very, that's basically the same thing. You're just basically lifting what the Bible says. And you're just putting it down in today's world. And it works. Like, don't lie. Got it. That's, that's not hard. You can just be so dogmatic about it. You can just lay into it. But when it comes to things that are a little bit further away. And I draw it like, I'll talk about this like this. Here's, my, here's how I draw it on the thing like this. As the biblical text becomes more and more abstracted away from the concrete, 
Your application becomes further away from the text. You have to be much more lenient in how you interpret that. As in, I'm not going to hold you. I'm not going to be. When I speak, I'm going to say you ought to. I'm going to use language that is less hard and fast and more like you ought to consider this or this is probably the right thing to do and less more like you must. Okay, because where does the where does the authority lie? It lies in scripture, not in my opinion. One question, then we'll be yes, sir. Would be more like um, uh, respecting the spirit of the law as opposed to the letter of the law. Right. Yeah, we're talking about the spirit of law. What's the spirit of the law? What's the essence of it? What's the meaning? And this, I mean, we use something pretty simple and pretty straightforward here—a law. But we're going to get into things that are not as as straightforward. So some of you guys are are dealing with things that are a little bit more difficult. So, um, all right, I think I asked for you to turn in what your block outline. Does anybody need to take their block outline home? Is it their only copy? No. So if you'll pass them in, I'm going to take a look at them this week. And I offer this to one of you guys. Um, if you would like to sit down and have a discussion about your text and want some personal help, um, I would be more than happy to do that. Um, but I mean, I, you'd have to schedule it, schedule it in my calendar. So just, just email me and we'll work something in the calendar. And I can probably give you about 30 to 45 minutes of time, one-on-one time to work through it, if you want. Um, but does anybody else need have something that they can't? Does anybody have anything they can't? Oh, so are you okay with me t- keeping this, or do you need it back? You don't need it back. Okay. I, everything I turn in is my only copy. So okay, I'll make a copy of it then, and I'll keep your copy, and then I'll give it back to you. All right, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Good job.